Hello and welcome to another edition of Brexit and Beyond podcast from UK in a Changing Europe. Today we're going to be talking to Professor Will Jennings from the University of Southampton. Uh, Will is the author of a number of books. Uh, two of the most recent include Politics of Competence, which he co-authored with Jane Green, and another co-authored book, The Good Politician, from 2018, which looks at anti-politics, really from the 1940s onwards in the UK, and attempts to diagnose it. Will, welcome. We're going to talk to you a little bit later about some work that you've been doing uh, with the help of UK and Changing Europe on trust and uh, Brexit and COVID. Now, obviously, I know you pretty well, but um, uh, some of our listeners may not. So if you had to pick three or four sort of take home messages from the work that you've done so far in your entire career will uh, big question well i mean so i think if you were to ask me i mean i work in a, in a number of uh, areas which i might pick out a few things from i mean i think the first i'd say is actually i've done a lot of work looking at how the public responds to government policies and and, uh, and government and actually you know i think the key number one thing i'm going to say is the public aren't stupid you know the public can recognize failures in government they can they can recognize good and bad performance from government and political parties. They can recognize uh, when the people are trying to, to pull the wool over their eyes. And so I think, you know, what one key thing I think is the public's quite good at recognizing when government's going too far beyond its, its remit. So I think that, that would be one thing. I think, and, and tell well, us how, I mean, how, how do you square that with uh, surveys which show actually the public don't pay a great deal of attention to politics and indeed have very little knowledge on average of politics? Well, I mean, I, and I think that, I think this is what, one of the issues. It's, in some ways, you know, in the aggregate, we don't need everyone to play a great deal of uh, attention to politics. In fact, it must be slightly unhealthy if they, if they did. And I think what, one, of, one of the reasons is that actually most people dip in and out of politics. Um, you don't need a lot of information about politics to know which way things are headed. And so, you know, it's on one level, I'd say, well, you know, it's easy to pull out a opinion survey that shows that people don't know the specifics of an individual policy. But actually, the public can pick up pretty clear signals pretty fast about a whole lot of policy sectors. They And they do it in different ways. They can get it from media, from actual personal experience, from, from kind of social information that they get through their social network. So they can know whether schools are struggling, whether, you know, the coronavirus um, uh, you know, responses being well handled. They can see for their own eyes whether there are potholes. Um, and so actually, when you kind of sum that up, people can make quite a broad evaluations of how government's performing, whether or not they want the government to be spending more on public services or less, whether they want to have higher or lower taxes. And so, you know, even if we, if we on an individual survey say, well, what do you think about the most recent bill introduced by the government? Most people quite rightly would have very little in the way of a kind of form structured opinion, but they can know uh, how things are going. And so I think that's, that's in some ways the paradox when we're thinking about public responsiveness that, you know, in the aggregate, people do know what's going on. They do know when governments have overreached their ideological and uh, um, remit. I think the, I think the other, re one of the other things that I, I, I guess I'm known for is the work I do on policy blunders uh, and about why governments blunders. And one of the things that I think I've been grappling with over my whole career, actually, is this question of whether or not British government and British politics has a particular tendency to blunder and, and the coronavirus um, uh, kind of governance 
has actually been quite interesting in that regard, because I think there have been moments at which we felt Britain has done terribly badly. Um, but actually, at the same token, if you go to other countries and read some of their accounts of their failings in handling COVID, if you read, I mean, I've read accounts of, you know, kind of from the Netherlands or, or so forth, they actually read remarkably like the British case in terms of how people understand um, their failings of their own governing system. And so I think one of the insights from uh, the work that I've done with, with colleagues on blunders is, is really thinking about the role both of, of governance structures, but also um, decision-making. So about the sorts of cognitive biases and, and cognitive uh, mistakes that people make in, in politics to do with optimism bias and other sorts of kind of uh, fallacies that we make in decision-making, but also the role of policy instruments about why policymakers seem to pick the policy instruments that sometimes are not suited to the job. And so I think that's been interesting for something like test and trace and, and, and more broadly, actually, the whole response to, to coronavirus has been the reliance on a lot of contracting out and, um, you know, kind of public-private partnerships that have not been well designed. And I think if we look at the history of British government over 25, 30 years, there's a lot of evidence of those sorts of policy instruments having proved to be both uneconomic and, and leading to, to policy failure. So I, I guess that the work we've done um, around blunders has given those sorts of insights of the kind of the dual importance of the choice of the good, pol good, good policy tools, but also the role of um, high politics in creating the sorts of kind of cognitive biases that um, lead policymakers to take decisions against their own interests. Right. Does, does ideology play a role there, do you think, or not? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think, you know, in some ways, I think ideology and, uh, and kind of almost policy radicalism among political elites is quite significant in leading them to make political mistakes. I mean, that was one of the kind of an argument not made by me, but one of the arguments that's been put forward by people about the poll tax um, and Nick Moran's work on policy catastrophes was always that um, politicians who are in great, engaged in kind of great leap forward thinking, kind of radical policies um, would often push too far and fast and, and make mistakes. Um, but as I say, I think, we, uh, the, I think what's interesting about this is, is not just that we, we all make mistakes, but actually about politicians who we assume are per, and perfectly rational actors actually making mistakes that are not, not their own interest, that they could actually advance their ideological agenda further if they took time to step back from it. So absolutely, ideology is a, is a significant factor in the, in the field of high politics in, in leading people to overconfidence, to kind of over-aggressive decision-making. And you mentioned as well cognitive bias is one of the things that appeals to you about political science is that it is quite eclectic in other words it will borrow from other disciplines in this case you know both economics and psychology in a way yeah absolutely i mean you know i think this is true of many many disciplines actually and, and i think you know i think there's a, there's a, a lot to be said for an interdisciplinary focus that in political science we can borrow from i mean social psychology um you know methods that i use in my research will be um you know taken from statistics or, or econometrics and so uh, I, I, but equally you know there's some very there's some fantastic work on kind of blundering in, in by states and governments in in in, in, in history so I think, you know, political science as, as a discipline allows us to engage with contemporary questions, but using a very 
um, wide range of techniques and theoretical perspectives, you know, right, right from the individual level, the kind of psychological up the institutional level. And I suppose if you're someone like me, who's a, who is a little bit um, eclectic and esoteric in their choice of theoretical frameworks and methods, it does allow you to skip around and, and try and come up with an understanding of uh, what government's doing and what politicians are doing that, that draws on a whole host of um, analytical traditions. Yeah, and I think the use of history there is is quite important. I think sometimes that's one of the things, perhaps as political scientists and indeed social scientists, sometimes we ignore perhaps at our peril. And, and in some ways, that's why, you know, the work uh, that you did on on the good politician and on anti politics, I think, was quite interesting because you you did actually go back into the archives there, didn't you? Uh, used I think mass observation stuff mm. from Sussex University. Yeah, no, and, and that and that project was absolutely it was fantastic, both from from a perspective that actually that the team that was working on it with with Nick Clark from and Jerry Jerry Stoker from Southampton, Nick's a geographer. Um, uh, and Jonathan Moss at Sussex, who's a, who's a historian, was actually a, a very interdisciplinary team, although we do tease Nick that actually as a geographer, he really was just a political scientist and we didn't really understand what geography was all about. I mean, and actually geography is a fascinating discipline, actually, because it is it's probably even more eclectic than political science. But but the, the, the really fun thing about that project and that book, and I suppose it is now, you know, some of the work that, that I, I kind of, I would say is probably in my stable of, I think what I'm really proud of is that we show that rising negativity towards politics and, polit and politicians. And we did it in using a very mixed method way because the Mass Observation Archive uh, diaries, I mean, there's a variety actually of material in the Mass Observation Archive. There were, they, they had people going around um, listening on, on public conversations in the park or whatever and taking notes. But we, but we used these, um, what they were called directives that were essentially volunteer social diaries that people were writing uh, right back from 1930s. And of course, you know, one of the debates around the Mass Observation Archives is, well, this is not like a kind of uh, an opinion survey where these are highly representative people. It's a bit like, you know, any, any, anyone who wants to give up time to write a diary about their kind of um, their kind of social existence must be a little bit, you know, a little bit like slightly more engaged in politics and social issues than, than your average punter. But it, but it actually allows you an insight into the sorts of ways in which people talked about politics and, and felt about politics in those different periods. And so we use the Mabs Observation Diaries to kind of use this kind of static comparison between the two time periods um, in a way that was basically a bit like unstructured kind of um, responses to a public opinion survey. So you've got all these characters that the ways that people talked about politics and politicians in the two periods were really able to look at that and get a sense of the, the, the rise of negativity, actually the horrible language for people to use to talk about politics now compared to the, the post-war period, which wasn't all sweetness and light. Actually, you know, I think now we're in this kind of nostalgic period where we talk about uh, Attlee and Churchill as these kind of um, titans of the political age who were much loved and celebrated. Well, actually, in the mass observation archives at the time, people were pretty cynical about politics and they, call, they talk about mudslinging and, and politicians with gift of the gab. Um, you know, but they actually had a pretty negative um, dialogue about um, politicians, campaigning, party politics. But, but as you move forward, the Mass Observation Diaries gave you the sense in which the negativity and nastiness about politicians has, in, has in, increased in a way that it hasn't for other social groups. So, and, and then that project was just fascinating because then we squared it up with survey data we had and just kind of, but it was almost a, it was a valid, you know, validation exercise in saying, well, actually, whatever sort of material you use, you know, you put together, it's a bit like kind of being a detective, that you increasingly assemble the evidence to make a kind of compelling case that there has been this shift in the way 
that we think about politics and it is increasingly negative and, and distrustful of the motives and the and, and the kind of the virtues of politicians so what about the the last thing maybe before we go on to um some other things what about the last thing you'd, you'd want people to know your work for well i mean i guess the work that we've done on on uh, competence the work jane green and i have done on on the politics of competence i think is really um important work in in trying to understand the way in which people uh, uh citizens evaluate the competence of political parties and parties in government and, th and that actually speaks a lot to both the 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 the, 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 to the other the other projects that i've talk, talked about uh, in the sense that you know first of all you know voters actually again make informed decisions based on the record of parties in government um, in terms of their commitment to policy issues. And so voters are able to update their view of whether a, a party is able to handle a particular issue through, through a variety of mechanisms. And we find that, that in, in, in the work that Jane Knight done, um, and, and they do inform based on specific you know, measures. So actually, if you've got a party in government and, it, and it's struggling to handle the economy, voters will pick that up. But actually, if it's struggling to handle public services, they will respond and adjust their evaluations of the competence of the party on that issue and so i think that and that's important work because we also then go on to demonstrate that there are significant dynamics by which those evaluations become generalized so that parties and, and governments develop reputations for competence or incompetence that kind of spread across the board and i think what i really like about that work is that kind of demonstration that voters can use one issue as a heuristic for other issues so if you know that the government's failing on health or education it will give you a sense that it maybe isn't able to handle other issues and there's and we show uh, comparatively in, in a number of different countries evidence for that for that idea and I, and I think it's quite compelling um about that kind of the, the way in which the way in which voters make up their minds um and then that kind of has has a knock-on effect so what we show is that the evaluations of competence for incumbent parties tends to follow what we kind of call the cost of governing this idea that um you know parties will enter office have a little bit of a honeymoon period and then the bad news accumulates builds up and, and voters increasingly view view the party in in in, in negative terms uh, and i think that provides quite important helpful insights in understanding why governments uh, although in theory should actually you know parties should get better in the longer they're in government as they get more experienced and people get in government and ministers get more experienced of handling their policy portfolios um why parties and government tend to tend to struggle and actually i think it's one of the remarkable things about the, the recent period of British politics is that we have a party that's been in government for 10 years kind of reinvented itself as not trying to avoid these costs of governing and so actually it's kind of a, it's a counter to some of the work that we've done. Okay right we're going to take a short break now uh, and when we come back we'll talk a little bit about um, some of the work that Will does outside of the academy. Hello sorry to interrupt this fantastic podcast my name's Catherine Barnard and I'm one of the senior fellows on the UK and a Changing Europe programme. And I wanted to tell you about our wonderful newsletter that comes out each week, full of news and views. And then if you're really interested, follow us on Twitter too. OK, welcome back. Uh, we're talking to uh, Will Jennings from the University of Southampton. Uh, Will, we've been talking about your academic work, but um, some people may not know uh, that actually you do quite a lot outside the so-called ivory tower. Many people who watch Sky may be aware that you've been part of their election coverage for some time, albeit sometimes in the back room rather than in the, the front room. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got into that and whether getting into it has something to do 
with you know a kind of commitment that you have to, to public engagement to bring the work of social science uh, to a wider audience yeah well so i mean i've worked with sky um for john general elections and, and local elections and u.s elections since 2017 um before that actually I, I in 2010 i was part of the bbc team um you know i was a, as a, i was essentially a very junior uh, kind of t-boy uh, role uh, as part of the, the analysis team in the 2010 election working with right. people like john curtis and, and rob ford and so was there was there some big transfer fee uh, <laughs> I, I, I wish. No, I mean, actually, funnily enough, I think at that time, point in time, I didn't, sorry, at that time, in, uh, that point in time, I didn't really feel like I was kind of contributing very much to the team because they were such smart people and it was a pretty big team. And so I kind of thought, I've done one election, I think I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give it a break for a while. But, but Michael Thrasher, who I work with at Sky, got me back in. And, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I, I love working with Sky. And actually, you know, on one level, you can kind of uh, romanticise it and say it's about a kind of a commitment to public engagement. But actually, it's just really fun. And I love working with, with media because actually, you know, I think in academia, we do things in a kind of slow way. They can be very considered um you know we often talk about planning projects in terms of years or decades um in media actually you know when you're working with journalists who are incredibly smart people who have to deal with a new emerging issue in a very short space of time to think about how to communicate it to a public audience it just actually raises just a whole host of different issues and so actually when you get stuck in and i, and I actually much prefer working in the back room because we do a huge amount of work thinking about data and how we're going to present elections whether it's a general election or a u.s presidential election like we're working on at the moment and so a lot of the time it's first of all translating what we know from political science about what's going to matter in the election understanding the sort of data we're going to have on election night so how we're going to present that how we're going to inform the coverage and then thinking you know well well what sort of analysis we can can we produce and so actually going through that process is in in the in advance of the election is actually a huge amount of of fun because you have to kind of think in different ways you have to engage with different people who haven't been following necessarily the the kind of u.s politics or british politics in quite the quite the same way that you have for the last few years mm. um and so so it's it's actually it's just it's, it's so in that regard and then you get the adrenaline rush of election night which is slightly terrifying because you, you have to get everything so well prepared because it just does turn into an absolute mad blur um, of sleep deprivation and um, you know, kind of programming. So, no, I mean, so on that level, it's it's um, it, it now having gone back into it in 2017, I, I, can't, I was going to give it up because it is a bit of a drug. All oh, right. Okay. So, so you're addicted. Well, another way of bringing um, social science research to a wider audience is, of course, to get involved with UK and Changing Europe. And uh, we've uh, helped fund your one of your latest research projects. Uh, which is uh, about trust. Um, tell us a little bit about that. How did you conduct that research and, and what are the main findings? Well, we, we were already doing a little bit of work on trust more, more broadly in terms of kind of global um, patterns of trust, uh, you know, kind of the UK in that wider, wider global context, uh, you know, partly because there's you know, been an ongoing concern about the state of democracy and illiberal um, democracies as well um, around, you know, what are the problems of, of trust. But actually, and, but so one of the things that we wanted to address and why we, we came up with the project with UK and a Changing Europe was to understand trust in the context of Brexit, because we've been living through the last few years of a, quite a polarised political context of these new identities of leave and remain that seem to be polarising British politics. And so we thought at this point in the Brexit process, while there's been a fair bit of distrust thrown around, it, it would be interesting to start to explore these issues. And actually one of the features of 
the general election campaign and certainly what the Prime Minister said um, uh, in, in Sedgefield a couple of days after winning uh, the election handsomely was that uh, his duty was to restore trust to those people who had voted Conservative for the first time. And, and you could argue that the election was really a, a kind of built, a kind of fought around trust in the issue of getting Brexit done. And so we were interested in kind of asking the question, well, what can the government do to restore public trust? Whether or not, you know, whatever your opinion on the Brexit negotiations and the internal and external uh, negotiations we've had over the last few years, I think it's, it's, it would be difficult to dispute that um, there hasn't been an erosion of public trust in politics and, and politicians and, and British government. So we're interested in exploring that. And, and so to look at it, what we did was we, um, we ran focus groups in towns and cities uh, in, in England. Um, the, the towns were drawn from the sort of red wall type places in, in the northwest towns, the Oldham, Bolton, uh, Blackpool, and our cities were southern uh, kind of core cities like Bristol and London. And so what we did was we kind of got uh, groups of leavers and remainers in, in both of those places and asked them a series of questions actually more broadly about what, whether they trusted the government, um, you know, what issues they trusted the government on and their views of Brexit, and so so we so we ran these these uh, I think I think in the end there were eleven focus groups we kind of that we ran, um, and and of course as we were planning them as uh, COVID hit, and so we actually ended up holding them online as opposed to face to face as would be the norm to 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 get a sense of, of how people were feeling, and obviously COVID had quite a significant impact on people's views both of, of trust and their expectations around COVID. Sorry, around around Brexit. Do you see any kind of change in the views that you got from focus groups over the time that you were conducting it? Well, I think what was really interesting was, first of all, that um, people expressed quite latent trust in government. I mean, despite all these claims that, you know, that there is a kind of, there are, there, there is rising distrust in, in government and politics, and certainly the, the work that we've done with the good politicians shows that rising negativity. At a base level, people in, in the midst of the crisis have this latent trust that the government's trying its best and wants to protect people at this time of crisis. And so they have this kind of idea that trust is a leap of faith in, in, in government. And so that's certainly true. But we did also see during the focus groups, there was a sort of fraying of trust um, as specific things came up that people were unhappy about or that they'd seen um, kind of seen as being not handled very well, whether it was kind of, you know, miscommunication of messaging or, or so forth. And so there, there was this kind of sense in which, although we've gone through that rally around the flag period, things might start to kind of fray and come under pressure uh, later in the year. And as regards Brexit, what was really fascinating was that actually the prime, you know, it's absolutely clear that prime minister and the government are trusted on the issue of Brexit by both Remainers and Leavers. If you ask people what, what issue do you think the government's most trustworthy on, Remainers will say it too, actually, that they recognise this is an issue that the government won election on, they recognise its commitment to it, and actually they're quite fatalistic about, um, you know, Brexit being done. I think everyone actually sees Brexit as being done, and so and politically it's a kind of card that's already been played, and so what's interesting in that regard is that voters actually want to move on, and I think that points to the real kind of long-term challenge, certainly for the end of the year, as we move towards whatever might be a deal or no deal, is that the participant, the, the kind of the focus group participants we had, sort of their views are formed by the idea that Brexit's been done. And so I think if there is a sense in which it, the issue is revived, there is an ongoing conflict with the EU over, the, over a deal or no deal brings disruption, that could prove politically problematic for the government because of that kind of baseline expectation, um, which, which they benefited from in the election, but then may 
turn out to be something that is, is used against them. Right. Well, we look forward to seeing uh, that research. We look forward to seeing how um, indeed Brexit plays out. Just remains for me to say thank you very much to Professor Will Jennings from University of Southampton and to say what we've learned or what I've learned anyway from this podcast. First thing is that voters are actually pretty good at judging how governments are doing, even if they don't pay a great deal of attention to politics. Uh, It's also true, though, that voters uh, are pretty cynical about governments. But in fact, they have been pretty cynical about governments and politicians for quite a long time. It's not all due to Twitter and 24-7 news media. We've learned that people, uh, by and large, know that they have to trust the government, particularly in an emergency situation like this. But that trust is beginning to fray, perhaps, a little bit. And then finally, we've learned that working on TV election coverage is a bit like taking hard drugs. So thanks very much all of you for listening and see you next time.